From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore why teacher turnover has been on the rise in Wisconsin. Then we'll remember the life of Ada Deer, a leader in the Menominee Nation and former head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She was just a wonderful person. She was funny, a lot of fun to be with. She had one of the strongest personalities I've ever encountered. Um, and that's why we always said you're on the Ada train with her. Plus, we'll learn about a Milwaukee zoo escape that inspired a novel. In April of 1921, a full-grown male polar bear named Clown escaped from the Washington Park Zoo overnight and roamed the neighborhoods around Washington Park for a few hours before he was caught. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. In an average school year, about 1 in 10 Wisconsin teachers leaves for a different school district or a different job. That number shot up last school year to about one in six teachers leaving their classrooms. Wisconsin's record level of teacher turnover is the subject of a new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum titled Revolving Classroom Doors. WUWM education reporter Emily Files speaks with its author, researcher Sarah Shaw. Can you start out by just talking about what's happened with teacher turnover since the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, this was part of why we wanted to look at this issue because there had been such concerns about the educator workforce in the wake of COVID-19. And the first finding we had was to me, it's slightly surprising. We actually saw that the first year that was impacted by the pandemic, the first full year, um, actually saw lower than average turnover. Um, then the second year it starts creeping up and by the time we get to the 2023 school year going into that 22-23 school year uh, we found that turnover was at a record high of the, the 14 years of turnovers that we studied. So what we interpreted from that was that in the instability of that first year of the pandemic uh, teachers were largely staying put and then as the impact continued uh, they start leaving and that 2023 high was the highest rate of moves that we saw in terms of teachers moving from one district to another district, and the second highest rate of leaves, meaning that a teacher has left the public school classroom, whether to go elsewhere in a district in a different position, whether they're retiring, resigning into an, another job, um, or leaving the state or public schools altogether. So the last year that Wisconsin saw this kind of spike in teacher turnover was in 2012, post Act 10. Can you talk about the difference between what happened in 2012 and what happened in 2023? So 2012, the spike there was largely driven by retirements. So we see it as the highest leave rate in the data. You'll remember that I said 2023 was the second highest leave rate. It was 2012 that was that highest leave rate. Uh, so this was kind of a one-time shock to the system as teachers retired either on time or early to say, this is not where I'm going to be anymore. In 2023, we do see a higher number of leaves than usual, but we aren't seeing the same spike in the retirement data. Those data aren't complete yet, so we may still see it come through, um, but it seems to be a higher 
number of other types of leaves. And also it was the highest rate of moves in the data. So teachers moving between districts. Um, and that seems to align with what we see elsewhere in the public sector and even in the private sector, where the economy of the past couple of years has made for a very tight labor market where there's a lot of competition for workers. And so teachers and other workers have a lot of options or at least had a lot of options of where to go. And they seem to be have been exercising um, that ability to move. What school districts and teachers are most affected by turnover? The districts that really stood out in the data were our smallest rural districts. Um, they are seeing the, some of the highest move rates of losing teachers to other districts um, while still contending with even higher leave rates. So they're having to combat both losing teachers out of the classroom altogether and losing teachers to other districts. In addition to those types of districts, we saw that districts serving a majority of low-income students and districts serving a majority of students of color. In addition to a little bit, our city districts saw higher than average turnover. You also looked at the demographics of the teachers that are leaving classrooms. What did you find there? So despite making up um, less than 5% of our workforce, it was our teachers of color who had the highest levels of turnover as a whole. Um, so our white teachers who make up about 95% of our workforce actually had lower than average turnover, 11.3% compared to the statewide average of 11.5%. Um, our Black teachers, on the other hand, had the highest average turnover rate. Um, some of that might be explained by the fact that our teachers who are Black are concentrated in districts that have higher than average turnover for all races and ethnicities of their teachers, um, but it's certainly worth marking because our previous research has shown the benefits of teachers of color for all students and particularly for students of color. And so to have high turnover rates amongst exactly those teachers um, doesn't, doesn't bode well for having those teachers retained in classrooms to be able to serve kids. So you looked at both moves and leaves. Leaves meaning teachers who are in the public school staff data one year and then gone the next year, meaning they're not in working at any public school as a teacher. And then moves being teachers who moved from one public school district to another. So what did you find in terms of uh, how rural versus urban schools are dealing with um, or affected by leaves versus moves. This was a great example of where drilling down into the types of turnover um, helped illustrate both where there are shared challenges and where there are distinct challenges. So every single type of district that we looked at was grappling more with leaves than moves. That overall turnover rate the average of 11.5%. Um, most of that is made up by leaves, about 8%, um, as opposed to more like 3% for moves on average. Um, but it, when we look at urban versus rural, our urban districts are by far dealing with leaves more than moves. It's about 9.6% for their leaves and only 2.2% for their moves. So in our city districts, they're really grappling with retaining teachers in the classroom at all um, and have less to fear of losing teachers to other districts. Rural districts, on the other hand, still have higher leaves than moves, 7.1% uh, 
for leaves versus 3.8% for moves. But that 3.8% is one of the highest rates of moves that we see across our types of districts. So rural districts have to worry both about losing teachers from the classroom entirely and losing teachers to other districts. You also looked at donor versus recipient districts. Can you explain that and what you found? These donor or recipient dynamics were ones that we had heard about from administrators who were concerned that particularly in the districts that they represented, they were training up teachers who would then leave them and go to other districts. And the idea was that if a, if a district, when a teacher moves, was losing more teachers to moves than they were gaining from those moves, that was a donor district. And if a district was receiving more than they were losing, that's a recipient district. Um, and on the whole, our findings did support some of the stereotypes that exist and perceptions that exist in the profession where it was um, our districts that were um, serving the fewest students, our rural districts, our city districts, our districts serving majority students of color, and our districts serving majority students from low-income backgrounds that were the donor districts. Um, and those are, in many cases, the districts where we most worry about instability for students and creating negative impacts. And if people are curious to see, I wonder which school districts the teachers in my district are coming from or going to. You have an interactive data set on your website where you can look at the biggest districts, the top 10 districts in the state, and see where teachers are going and coming from. We do indeed, um, and it's been a pleasure to hear from districts that are using that tool to try to understand their own move and leave patterns better, because often from a district's perspective, they know when a teacher is leaving, but they don't necessarily know what's happening to them. Are they leaving the profession in, entirely, or are they moving to another district? So we're very hopeful that this interactive data set can help districts see their own data in a new light to better inform their own decision making. Yeah, just um, if people want some examples of that, the Milwaukee School District, the highest number of teachers who moved away from MPS went to charter schools. And then after that, it's the West Dallas, West Milwaukee School District and the Wauwatosa School District. But then it looks like Racine and Kenosha, when they lose teachers, if they leave Racine, they're going to Kenosha. If they leave Kenosha, they're going to Racine. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to look at that data and see kind of the pipelines of where teachers move to. That's right. And it's also instructive to look at both sides of it. So you gave the example of Racine and Kenosha. The same thing is true for the independent charter schools that Milwaukee loses about 15.5% um, of its turnovers to independent charter schools, but almost exactly the same number are coming from independent charter schools into MPS. So there's uh, a lot of movement back and forth there as opposed to it being a unidirectional pipeline. So we have a new school year starting um, soon, or it has started for some students already. Uh, is there any indication of whether this record teacher turnover is going to continue this school year? We are going to have to wait and see. Um, the one indication that I'm going to be looking at is how 
the private sector and the public sector as a whole are moving right now, because what we see in education in some ways is unique to the pressures on education right now, but in other ways reflects the broader economy. And if unemployment starts rising or the labor market cools a little bit or inflation continues cooling, we may see this mobility cool down. On the other hand, if some of these pressures continue, um, either in the classroom or outside of it, we could see the turnover rate um, stay at this high level. Sarah Shaw is a senior researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. She spoke with WUWM education reporter Emily Files. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. When there was a zoo at Washington Park, there were a few animal escapes. In about 20 minutes, we'll learn how one of them inspired a new book for young readers. But first, we'll celebrate the life and work of Native American advocate Ada Deer, who died last week. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Ada Deer, a leader of the Menominee Nation and the first woman to lead the Bureau of Indian Affairs, died last week at the age of 88. Her life was committed to uplifting Native American communities and her grassroots movement to restore federal recognition for her tribe forever changed the fate of the Menominee Nation. Monica McCauley is the Ada Deer Professor of Language Sciences at UW-Madison, a title she chose to honor Deer's work before her passing. McCauley joins me now to talk about her friend Ada Deer. Monica, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's my pleasure. For people who are unfamiliar with her life and her work, how do you describe Ada Deer? Oh, that's really hard. (laughs) Um, I think I would use the expression social justice warrior. She dedicated her whole life to social justice. And I mean, specifically for her own tribe, the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin, but also for native tribes all over the country and also for people in general. That was her main reason for being. I mean, I've never seen anyone so dedicated in my life. How did you come to know her? (laughs) When I came to Madison, to UW-Madison, I was kind of at a transition stage in my research career, and I thought, well, this would be a good time to work on a new language, since I'm a linguist and I work with Native American languages. And I sort of looked around, and Wisconsin has a lot of Native languages. We're very, very wealthy in that. And I was sort of thinking Menominee looked really interesting, and there were no linguists working on it at the time. And then I met Ada, I don't exactly remember how I met her, and she just thought that was a great idea and she really wanted me to do it. And I had two grad students at the time and what we used to say was, once you meet Ada, you're on the Ada train. 
Um, she just sort of swept us up and, and set us on, on the train to uh, doing this work. She took me up to the reservation the first time I ever went and introduced me to a huge group of people, many of the first language speaking elders and various other people in the community. And so I just will forever owe her a huge debt for that. I, I think when we lose someone who is such a connector, such a community builder, there is an essence that is lost with them. And what what would you want people to know about who she was and what she represented? I mean, I guess there are the sort of specific accomplishments of her life, or I guess I should say the major accomplishments of her life, because there were so many I could never, I'm sure I don't know of many of them. But I think the the first thing that people need to know about is the horrible move by the U.S. government to terminate tribal status for the Menominee. And she was just instrumental in in regaining tribal status, what they call restoration. And that's that's so significant for the tribe. I mean, termination was a, a horrible disaster. It was a horrible thing for them. And restoration has been wonderful. They're se- celebrating 50 years of restoration this year. Um, which is great, and they've come a huge way. So that's, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the main things that she's known for. Another one is that um, she was the Assistant Secretary of the Interior and the head of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, under when when Clinton was president. So that was a period of her life where she reached out beyond just her own tribe to all of the tribes. I remember, I mean, I knew her just sort of at the end of that time, is when I met her, I think she was just coming off that. And, and she just talked about how it was so important to her to go out and meet people from as many of the tribes in this country as she could and find out what their concerns were and work on those concerns. Um, so that was another really significant period of her life. I think those are the two really huge accomplishments that that she had. But then more personally, I think I would also say just as a human being, she was just a wonderful person. She was um, funny and just a lot of fun to be with. She had one of the strongest personalities I've ever encountered. Um, and that's why we always said you're on the Ada train with her. Um, so she was a social worker and, and she took that very seriously. And she, another thing she would do is, when she met you, like within an hour, she would start making a 10-year plan for you. So she gave a lot of advice, which um, I'm sure not everyone wanted to accept, but I always loved it. She was just, yeah, she was just a wonderful person and a wonderful friend. This really gets to what was my final question, but what do you hope is her legacy? Of course, she had all of these amazing things she did during her life, but how do you hope people remember her? You know, there's a quote from her, which, of course, I can't remember exactly right now, but um, she sort of, her her attitude was, you know, don't say it can't be done or don't say it's hopeless. Just get out there and do it. And there, there was a really wonderful quote in, in some of the um, obituaries and other material that I read um, after she passed. And and I think it was that, that I'm going to fix things attitude. You can't just sort of give up on things and you can't just go, oh, this is, we can't solve this problem. You just got to get in there and do it and work on it. And I think that that's probably one of the most important things about her. 
Monica McCauley is the Ada Deer Professor of Language Sciences at UW-Madison. Ada Deer was the first woman to lead the Bureau of Indian Affairs and a member of Wisconsin's Menominee Nation. She passed away last week at the age of 88. For years, the Oneida Nation has faced challenges to its sovereignty from the small village of Hobart, which lies on the eastern half of the reservation, just west of Green Bay. The disputes range from garbage collection to police jurisdiction and roadways, but they always come down to challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. Rebecca Webster was an attorney for the tribe and shares the history of these legal battles in a book called In Defense of Sovereignty. Webster says Hobart's tactics are part of a wider strategy to upend tribal sovereignty throughout the country. She joins WUWM's Lena Tran to share more. Becky Webster So in English, what I just said is greetings, everybody. My name is Ganyata Gale, which means snow scattered here and there. My English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan. I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin. Just to dive in, you know, you write pretty early on that there's this patchwork of land ownership in the reservation. Different people can own it, and even under tribal ownership, there are different kinds of status, which leads to all these conflicts over who has jurisdiction, whether it's the nation, the state, the village, federal government. Can you describe how changes in federal Indian policy basically paved the way for the legal battle that you describe in your new book? It started with our treaty of 1838, the Treaty with the Oneida. That set aside our current reservation here in Wisconsin as 65,400 acres or so. So that um, was during the treaty-making era, part of the removal treaties, actually, that removed us from New York State. That's where the Oneida people are originally from. So that land, according to the treaty, was held by the tribe as a whole. Individual people didn't own pieces of that. The tribe held that as communal property. And in 1887, Congress passed the General Allotment Act, and that act was meant to break up tribal land holdings. And what it did is it granted ownership of individual parcels within reservation boundaries like Oneida and gave title to individual people. It was held in, in a protected status for a period of time, but then uh, would become just like everybody else's land where you could mortgage it, you could sell it, you had to pay taxes. And what happened in the case of Oneida here, um, within a single generation, we lost over 90% of the land, meaning it went from ownership from tribal members to non-members because of tax foreclosures, mortgage foreclosures, scrupulous land sales, all kinds of things happened to have such a dramatic loss of land. So that's one of the federal policies. And then what came on its heels was in the early 1900s, uh, late 1920s, there was a report called the Miriam Report, which evaluated the success of the General Allotment Act's goals of assimilating Indian people into mainstream society and breaking up tribal land holdings. The report revealed that yes, you broke up tribal land holdings throughout the United States, but Indian people did not assimilate 
and melt away into mainstream society. And in fact, Indian people remained on their reservations more poor and desolate than ever. And if you really want to address this Indian problem, you need to restore management of tribal affairs to tribal governments. And then Congress later passed the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. And that set in place a process, among other things, lots of things, for tribes to reacquire land on their reservations and have that land taken into trust status, the same status it was under the treaty. Because of all of these shifts in federal Indian policy, we now have state and local governments owning land. We have non-tribal members owning land. We have tribal members owning land. We have the tribal government owning land, all in this, some people call it a checkerboard pattern throughout the Oneida Reservation. And on top of that, we also have local governments here on the reservation. So we share this territory with the town governments, city governments, and county governments. All of these different overlapping layers of ownership and jurisdiction lead to a really confusing landscape when you're trying to plan for how this place looks. The confusing landscape that you find yourself in as an attorney when you are with the United Nations Intergovernmental Negotiation Team or the legal team. How did you first get involved in that work? So that was one of my favorite things that I did when I was an attorney for for my tribe is um, to be able to reach out and work with these local governments that we share this territory with to try to figure out ways to provide the best services to our respective and combined communities. One time we were negotiating with the city of Green Bay, the early stages of us meeting together, we had brought in a map to show the Oneida Reservation, and there's a portion that overlaps with the city of Green Bay. And the the mayor at the time looked at the map and he said, oh, tell me, how is it that the reservation came to be within the city boundaries? And we were just, okay, hold on a minute. This is a really great teaching moment because the Oneida Reservation was here before Wisconsin was a state. So we need to start there. And then we walk through the history. So those intergovernmental uh, discussions are a really great opportunity for us to learn about each other and to be able to not only interpersonally develop those relationships, but to find out how each government works and ways that we can work together to provide optimal services to our shared communities. So you just mentioned Green Bay, but much of the focus of the book is this legal feud between the village of Hobart and Oneida Nation that plays out over garbage collection, police jurisdiction, roadways, all of it challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. I guess, where did all of that start? The first lawsuit actually was um, coincided with the year I graduated law school and came home. It was the, the welcome home was a lawsuit that the village filed because the Oneida Nation had purchased a large chunk of property in an area that's you know within the village of Hobart, but on the Oneida Reservation. Hobart wanted to develop that into an industrial park. The Oneida Nation did not want that area to become an industrial park because we don't control you know, what other folks are doing on the reservation, the only way for us to have a say in that would be to purchase the property. So we did. Um, and the dispute on that instance was whether or not the village was going to put a road through there for their industrial park. And since we bought the land, we said, we don't really want a road here. We're not going to develop it. And they said, we don't care. We want to put a road in anyway. And then we were in court. So that was kind of the start of the more recent things. 
Bill Gulnick, who was our former uh, chief of staff for Oneida, was also participating in a lot of these intergovernmental negotiations, as well as consulted on these the, the lawsuits that we had. But he has a bit of history even before that, um, into the 80s, that was going on here in Oneida. So these aren't really new issues, so to speak. They're just the ones that had just come just one right after the other in succession that led to the most recent set of disagreements between the Oneida Nation and this one particular local government. What was that like as a young law school graduate to have this be the first case that you were working on? You know, when you come out of school, you really don't know what you're going to be doing. So I I was um, a little bit shocked to find out that there was this local government that disliked us so much that they were willing to challenge us at every turn like this. And and this is the part of the reservation that I grew up in. I had no idea there was a Hobart when I was growing up. I just thought it was all the Oneida Reservation. It was extra strange in one of the lawsuits that my best friend in high school, her dad had joined on an amicus brief. So that that really troubled me to think that all the times that I was at her house in in school, did did he really have this disdain for me because because I'm Oneida? So it just really switched around what what I thought I knew of what was going on here when I was growing up. You knew there was a little bit of the hostility, but to know that it was that close was really troubling to to see that that there were more people in the community that disliked Oneida than I had originally thought. Can you explain, you know, why or what's your understanding of, you know, why the village cares about the land issues, you know, exerting their taxes, their ordinances? What is at stake from their point of view? I think it's just a matter of control. And they have such a hard time letting go of control over things that they actually, under federal law, they don't have an ability to to have control over. So we're, the United Nation is a sovereign tribal government and, and Hobart is a municipal government with very limited powers under state law. And they constantly and regularly try to tell the United Nation how it should be going about doing its business. And sometimes you have to look back at that. And it's it's kind of comical that that they would think that they have the ability to have a say in what's going on on the reservation in, in this part of the reservation. But they would tell the people in the village of Hobart that the United Nation is a threat. That that fight for control eventually comes to a head, at least in your book, over the Unida's Apple Fest. What is Apple Fest? And then how did that come to take center stage for for this fight for sovereignty. That was centered on the Oneida Big Apple Fest, which is a celebration of our relationship with apple orchards. Um, even though you know apples aren't indigenous to the United States, the Oneida people and our other Haudenosaunee relatives have a very long history of caring for our apples. So that was one of the things at harvest time that we would have a festival to celebrate those apples. And Part of it was in the village of Hobart, and it may have all been within Hobart, now that I'm thinking about it. But what happened is Hobart said, hey, wait a minute, we want you to get an event permit from us. And the Oneida Nation is just, what? Why are we going to get a permit from you for this? This is crazy. Not only is our police force four times the size of your police force, we've already have excellent working relationships with all of Brown County which is Hobart's located in Brown County. 
we have agreements with them over what will happen on those county roads. We, we're set. We don't need um, your input or your interference with this at all. And Hobart sued. This really brought to light Hobart's main arguments throughout all of this litigation is they're really challenging that the Oneida Nation isn't a legitimate government, that we didn't exist before 1934, um, and that we shouldn't be allowed to have our land taken into trust. And most importantly, that our reservation somehow over the course of that allotment process disappeared. So it was either diminished or disestablished. So the um, district court found in favor of Hobart, which was a terrifying time for us because that would that would that would really turn back the clock on a lot of the things that we were understanding about the jurisdictional landscape here on the Oneida Reservation and potentially in other reservations throughout the country. On appeal, fortunately, the Oneida Nation won, and the court there had said, "No, the the Oneida Reservation still exists. They don't have to get your permits." And all of the the arguments that Hobart had tried to put forward, the Seventh Circuit had turned down. Mm -hmm. So the question is, or the challenge is, whether the reservation still exists after the tribe lost ownership of the land due to those federal policies that you were describing earlier? Yes, yes. So Hobart's argument was that once land had been allotted and the tribal member lost ownership of that land, that it somehow fell off of the reservation, like it was no longer reservation land, which mm -hmm. really ran counter to all of the cases that the Supreme Court and other courts have decided before. So, and this is all, again, this group called Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance. And that group is affirmatively trying to change federal Indian policy in favor of state and local governments to the detriment of tribal governments. The Oneida Reservation was one of their targets because they knew that they had a Republican appointed federal judge here and they wanted to try to change federal Indian law. And they almost succeeded in that Big Apple Fest case when the federal judge tried to change the law and said, yes, all of this resulted in the diminishment or disestablishment of the Oneida Reservation, which ran counter to everything that I had understood about federal Indian law. And again, like I mentioned, fortunately, the Seventh Circuit said, no, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. That's not how things are. Hobart is this pretty small town of today, I think like 10,000 people, and it's over something innocuous sounding like, you know, a big apple fest. When did you realize that that had huge stakes for Indian reservations across the country? Well, we, we knew it. There were signs all over the place where we had been in contact with other tribal um, attorneys in, for other tribal reservations. Um, and we would see the briefs that are almost identical. So they had this network that where they would challenge, you know, fee to trust applications, jurisdictional issues in different reservations throughout the country, again, to try to change federal Indian law. So this isn't something that's just happening here in Oneida. This is happening on other reservations where you have these anti-tribal organizations infiltrating these local governments to try to get the law changed to the detriment of tribal sovereignty. Mm. Do you feel that your book or these experience offer lessons for nations facing similar challenges elsewhere? Yes, most definitely. I'm hoping that this book will bring awareness to these types of issues where people might just say, oh, you know, just get their permit. Just, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. These are huge issues that if we you know, succumb to these things, what, what's next? What are these local governments going to do to chip away 
at our tribal sovereignty. Because I said, this isn't just happening here in Oneida, this is happening in other places. So we need to continue that network of tribes talking to each other to help each other in these types of disputes, because we know that this is something that we just, we need to stay on top of and we need to stay vigilant. This has been really informative. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Webster is the author of In Defense of Sovereignty and an associate professor in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran earlier this year. Do you recognize this sound? In about 10 minutes, we'll bring you a new series called Sounds Like Milwaukee, where we ask you to share your favorite sounds you hear in the community. But first, we'll learn how real events in 1921 Milwaukee inspired a new novel for young readers. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. You may recall all of the excitement there was when some thought there was a Milwaukee lion roaming around back in 2015. While it was never found, this event inspired one local author to look into other animal escapes that actually did happen here. How to Catch a Polar Bear by Stacy DeKaiser is a novel set in 1948 Milwaukee when there was still a zoo at Washington Park. To share more about the book and the true events that inspired it, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with author Stacy DeKaiser. In April of 1921, a full-grown male polar bear named Clown escaped from the Washington Park Zoo overnight and roamed the neighborhoods around Washington Park for a few hours before he was caught. Um, it happened to be early morning, so not too many people were out, but the newspaper reports did mention something about spilled trash cans and possibly a startled milkman before the police caught up with Clown. So how do you learn about Clown and, you know, his escape? That's a good question. I was trying to remember that as I was preparing for our talk today, and I don't really remember how and when I found out about Clown. It might have been there. I think there was an article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel a few years back when there was the Milwaukee lion story going yeah. out that people thought there was a lion on the loose somewhere in town, but nobody could like find him. And I think that inspired an article in the Journal Sentinel that brought up other this animal polar mishaps. Bear. <laughs> yes, and I, th- I think that might have been what it was. And it was probably, if I had to guess, I would say it was like 2018 or 2019. Because I started writing this book in March of 2020, which happened to be the day or the the month I like started not going anywhere. Yeah, so I think I, that's where I read about it first. Yeah, so that prompted this book. Can you share yes. a bit about what How to Catch a Polar Bear is about? And this is a book for young readers. It is, yeah, readers eight and up. It's about three 12 year old friends who live in Milwaukee in 1948, about three blocks from the city zoo. So the zoo is their playground. And they decide they need to solve the mystery of how a polar bear escaped from the zoo. 
one of the central characters to this story is 12-year-old Nick, who is also in your book before this. Um, but what helps you to not just think about what Nick would do in this new story and adventure scenario, but also how to write it to appeal to the preteen reader? That was a bit of a challenge, at least it was at first, because I've never been a 12-year-old boy, so it's kind of hard to... And it's written in voice, in Nick's voice. He's the narrator of both How to Catch a Polar Bear and The Rhino in Right Field, which is the previous book. It took me a long time because when I first started writing, it was in third person, and it was very, felt very stiff and stilted and just um, slow. And so I knew I needed to switch to first person, and it took me a while. It took me like draft after draft after draft of a bunch of chapters before I finally found Nick's voice. And it got to be fun after a while to just sort of look at the world through the eyes of a 12-year-old and remember what's important to them and what's not. So I was just trying to think of things from the point of view of a 12-year-old helped. And um, my husband tells me I'm kind of stuck in, the, in pre-adolescence emotionally. I'm not sure if that's true, but um, <laughs> it's, I don't know. I think I've been lucky that I've sort of been able to remember being 12, even though I wasn't a boy. When it comes to revisiting Nick, why um, why do you want to do that versus potentially write a new character for this story? How did you want him to mm. grow or did you want to just kind of get back in that mindset with him? A little bit of both, I think. Um, the character Nick is based on my dad's childhood. My dad is also named Nick. And so I I really have enjoyed writing that character and sort of just immersing myself in the world of 1948 Milwaukee and um, because it's allowed me to, to do a lot of research and just learn about the history of my hometown. So that was one big draw. And I think there's just so many stories to explore regarding the Washington Park Zoo era and area and the culture and society at that time, which is very different in a lot of ways from what it is now, but but also has a lot of similarities. I think kids back then were very similar in a lot of ways to how they are now. And I like the idea of showing kids that they have this bond across the years. You mentioned doing a lot of research into Milwaukee during this era, and you had some great local resources, one of them being the Milwaukee Public Library Archive. So I'm curious, what were some of your keyword searches that you oh, did gosh. for the stories? Um, well, Washington Park Zoo, for sure, was one. And then, you know, like um, polar bear escape or animal escape, monkey escape. It turns out that there were quite a few monkey escapes. Yeah, I didn't know about that years. one. I didn't either. It was, kind of, it was quite a surprise. So, yeah, those sorts of words. And, yeah, they brought up some, some wonderful um, photos and also newspaper clippings. Yeah. yeah, and especially to read things as they're happening in real time in those archives, right? Right, yeah. Even more than the articles themselves, the ads that were in the newspapers on that day or like the movie listings or the radio listings were really also very informative. Yeah, I love looking at those. Uh, another resource you used to help write this story was the County Zoo, which also has a librarian, which a lot of people might not know or think about. So what did you learn from them that stood out to you, even if it didn't make it into the book? Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the Milwaukee Zoo Library is one of my favorite places because like it has two, two awesome things in the same place. Yeah, to, to think that the zoo has a library, just I still love that whole concept. And Mary Kazmerzak is the zoo librarian, and she's been very helpful to me. She's, I, she's still answering my emails. I still ask, ask her questions, even though the book is finished, and she's very kindly answers them for me. But we had a really long discussion by email a while ago about the moat around Monkey Island. 
um, in the ori- the original Monkey Island at the Washington Park Zoo. And w- was there or was there not a boat in the moat? And we finally determined that there was a boat. And then the question is, like, was the boat tethered to the island or could the monkeys go anywhere? And if they could, like, maybe they could escape. So we, we went back and forth many times about the speculating and um, she dug into the archives and she found out. So we did establish, yes, there was a boat. And she did determine, in fact, just a little while ago that, yes, it was tethered probably to the dock on, on the island. So the monkeys could not, like, paddle across the moat and jump out. Um, that, that, I don't think the boat did make it into the book. It was, it was, could have been a really critical plot point because there, there is a monkey escape in the zoo, but I don't think I used that, but it was still really fun to research. As you mentioned, your dad's childhood in Milwaukee inspired your book, both this one and the one before the rhino in Wright Field. And another central character is the Washington Park Zoo. So can you share more about how you felt revisiting the Washington Park Zoo for this? Do you feel like you have a better picture of what it must have been like and and can place yourself in that time and space? Uh, I do so much in that. I think if I were to go up there right now, I I would be surprised that the zoo is not there. I would really expect it to be there. And so I did walk around the park, the section of the park where the zoo used to be to try and identify like vestiges of the original zoo. And there's not much left there, but there is some, some of the, so the roadways are the same and the, um, there's, there are a couple of retaining walls that are there. Other than that, and I think there's like a concrete pad where a snack bar used to be. There's not that much left yeah. anymore. And when you, what really impressed me is that how small an area it is. Um, just a few acres and just not much at all. It's hard to imagine like 400 different species of animals being crammed in this one tiny little spot. Yeah. where If we're going to go walking there, where yeah. can we find like say the retaining walls you mentioned? Well, the zoo itself was on the southwest corner of the park. And so like where the senior center is and around that area. So the corner of Bleet Street and 47th Street. So if you park on Bleet Street, just east of 47, like sort of in front of the in front of the senior center, just to the east of the senior center, there's a little circular driveway and a parking lot, and there's a stone retaining wall with a like a three foot tall chain link fence on top of it, and that retaining wall was the the wall for the buffalo pen, and I think for the I think there was a moose there for a while too, but the buffalo were like right there. The retaining wall is what kept them from escaping, so that's that's, <laughs> that's literally crazy. still there, yeah. Now that you've been in this world of Washington Park Zoo, even though it doesn't exist anymore, there's the Milwaukee County Zoo, but when people go to the zoo, say, having read your books, whether it's the the kids or the parents who read them with their children, what do you want them to think about next time they're strolling through and looking yeah, at the animals? That, yeah, I think, well, I th- maybe they should think how Nick thinks, too. Um, what have the animals given up to give us a nice day in the summer? because they did not ask to be there. But zoos are for people, and, and I think they serve a wonderful purpose. But I think it's nice to know that we're sort of recognizing our responsibility to animals now and, um, and that we need to give them the best life we can while serving our own, our own needs, and not just for entertainment, but for education and um, for preserving different species around the world. So I just hope that kids like learn to appreciate the animals they're looking at and realize that they're sentient creatures, that they're, that they're here for us, and maybe that, you know, tell them thanks for, for letting us uh, share time with them. 
Well, Stacey, thank you for your time today and for sharing more about how to catch a polar bear. Thanks for having me, Audrey. It was fun. Stacey DeKaiser is the author of How to Catch a Polar Bear and other books for young readers. She joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. You can hear DeKaiser read an excerpt from her book at wuwm.com. WUWM is asking you to share your favorite sounds with us. That could be the sound of sizzling bacon in the morning, the crack of a baseball bat at American Family Field, or the church bells you can hear throughout the city. Really, any sounds that evoke a feeling or emotion. It's for a new series called Sounds Like Milwaukee. WUWM's Mayan Silver brings us one from a home in Brookfield. I'm WUWM's Mayan Silver. Today, we bring you a story about a beloved sound gone wrong. Here's Abe, age 10. He notes the source of the audio mishap. Um, the fish tank. (laughs) Two fish, Sammy and Bubbles, live there. Abe says it's usually a really soothing sound when he goes to bed, and one of his favorite sounds in the house. But when there's not enough water, it kind of goes like in the fish tank and it really woke me up and I was, it was somewhere around two in the morning, so. That's not what you want at two in the morning, right? Yeah. Abe's mom, Jessamine, leapt into action. I heard, mom, there's something in my room making a noise. And then I came in and it startled me at first because it was alarming. It was like, But then I gathered my thoughts and realized it was the fish tank. (laughs) After she unplugged it, it was nice and peaceful again. Did you for a split second think it was a monster? (laughs) You know, there's always that little bit of question in my mind. As for Abe's favorite sound in the house, I do like the cat's meow a little bit better. (laughs) Yeah. Send in your favorite sounds for the Sounds Like Milwaukee Project on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Whether you like a cat's meow, the sound of a bubbling fish tank, or something else entirely, we want you to send us your favorite sounds. You can find the instructions on how to submit at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Music lovers, be sure to tune in to Lake Effect tomorrow. We'll explore the unique contributions Milwaukee artists have made to the hip-hop scene. We'll tell you about Milwaukee's hip-hop history, plus hear music from Milwaukee-based pop duo Reyna in the latest Live at Lake Effect. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.